Hi, I'm Alex Mason, host of Stock Stories. This is the podcast where we decode investing principles by analyzing the business behind the stock, as well as learning about mental models in order to help you become a better investor. You ready? Let's go. <laughs> welcome welcome to the show oh my goodness i'm so excited to be here with you today thank you for tuning in to the stock stories podcast and again my name is alex mason i am your stock storyteller welcome to the show we've been talking a lot recently about reits real estate investment trust we talked about a data center company in the space we talked about a commercial retailer we talked about Ventas. We talked about healthcare REITs. So we've been just going through these real estate investment trusts. But today, I wanted to switch it up a little bit. Um, normally, we would do a mental model on this kind of episode today. But I said, you know what? I'll push the mental model out a little bit toward next week. Because there's a company that I've been wanting to study. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to set aside the time. And it was a listener suggestion from a while back, and I, I always had it in the back of my mind I wanted to come back to it. So I figured, what the heck, today's a perfect day to come back to this company. Now, this company is not in the S&P 500. It's actually a German company, and I know there are some listeners in Germany, so if you're listening from Germany, shout out to you. But this is a company that is one of the largest German companies out there. And in fact, it's actually one of the largest companies in the world. So it's a software company, and you know what? Let's just get right into it. We're gonna talk about SAP. All right, today we're talking about SAP with ticker symbol, you guessed it, SAP. <laughs> that was an easy one, right? So SAP is a software company. They're one of the biggest software companies in the world. And as I mentioned, they are based in Germany. So they primarily trade on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange, but you can also buy shares on the New York Stock Exchange as well. And so they trade multiple stock exchanges around the world. Now, the way that we go about these episodes, if you're new to the show, is first we go over a history of the company because it's important to understand the context of what the business is actually doing, right? How did we get to where we are today? And then after going through the history, we'll talk about the business as it is today. Go over the business model, try to understand how things are working in the present. And then we look toward the future by looking at financials and looking at current valuation and some conclusions. So that's the way that this episode and every episode is structured here on Sock Stories um, also, I've recently added chapter markers to these episodes. So if your podcast player supports it, you can go into your podcast player and actually have links to each of these sections within every episode. So you can skip right to the part that you want. So if you really just want to hear about the finances, you can skip right to the finances. If you want to hear the conclusion, you can skip right to that. Whatever you want to do, I want to make this 
and every episode as easy as possible for you to navigate and get value from. So if your podcast player supports chapter markers, you can start using that right now. All right, let's get into the history of SAP. Where did this company come from? Well, as with many of the companies we talk about, it doesn't exist in isolation. Its story doesn't exist by itself. Many companies come into being because they're influenced in some way or another by other companies that precede it. And that's exactly the case with SAP. Our story today starts actually in America and starts with another iconic technology company, International Business Machines, or IBM. So IBM, this is back in the early 1970s, and they were approached by another big tech company at the time, Xerox. So Xerox was trying to figure out their business model, how they wanted to move forward in the future, and they were trying to get out of the hardware business. And they wanted to use different business systems that were developed by IBM. So IBM became a contractor, basically, for Xerox to build this system. And as part of the deal, IBM got access to some software made by another American company called Scientific Data Systems. Now, the way that the story goes is there were five IBM engineers who were working in Germany, and they started working on some enterprise-wide software that was based on the Scientific Data Systems software. And they were trying to create the solution in order to help Xerox out. Now, unfortunately, during development of the software, these five engineers were told by their boss that IBM was not gonna have them support this project anymore. The work was actually gonna be transferred to another part of the company. Now, at this point, imagine you being the engineer in the story, you know, you might just kind of throw up your hands and say, all right, whatever, and just go back to work. But these five people, that's not what they did. Instead of giving up on the project, they felt like they were onto something. So they actually left the company. They left IBM and formed what would become SAP. And they founded the business as a private partnership in Mannheim, Germany in 1972. Now, slowly but surely, they developed software capable of supporting the early digital infrastructure of businesses in their area. Now, they didn't take bank financing, they didn't take venture capital or government assistance, but based on their product sales, they were gradually able to build up their business from operating cash flow. Now, they started out with smaller regional companies as clients, but eventually they gained enough expertise and notoriety that they attracted some large German multinational companies as clients, such as BMW and Siemens. Now, the idea of selling all-in-one business software was relatively new around this time. Now, so far, the software companies that did exist created software that was for specific tasks. And there was no guarantee that one company's software could work very well in the context of another company's software. So you can see the problem that this had for a lot of business owners around this time. Now, SAP's unique proposition was that they could create integrated workplace software for a variety of tasks, things like manufacturing, accounting, human resources, etc. And all of these things would be advantageous to the client, especially once you start connecting the dots, connecting all these things together. The more you can rely on a single system, the more you're likely to have things run smoothly within that system. By 1978, SAP had 40 companies as clients. And in time, they developed the R2 suite of applications. A decade later, in 1988, 
SAP became publicly traded in the German stock market. So they started developing the software, this R2 suite, and had all these different types of functionalities, and they were able to grow and become publicly traded. Now fast forward a little bit further into the future by the 90s. By the early 1990s, SAP could count 80 of the largest 100 companies in Germany as clients. So that's pretty amazing. They were able to command a pretty strong base of clientele. They expanded internationally at this point, and they started selling to companies in other countries, such as the United States. And SAP America actually became the company's fastest-growing subsidiary in the mid-1990s. Now, one of the ways that SAP was able to grow so fast is that companies did not want to fall behind with their technology infrastructure. They were nervous about their competitors, right? So if one company adopted SAP systems, their competitors were likely to follow just in order to stay relevant. And this is in the go-go days of the 1990s when technology was spreading really, really rapidly, particularly just adoption of the internet by itself was really a new thing in corporate America and in people's households. And SAP was able to capitalize on their existing technology because they were able to help people by packaging all these different pieces of software together into a single product. Now, throughout the 1990s, SAP released an upgrade of their system called R3. And this relied on networks of clients and servers instead of mainframes. So back in the old days of computer networking, you had these things that were called mainframes. They were kind of like these large centralized computer processing stations. You might have an entire room taken up by a single mainframe and it just required a lot of space and it was really slow and the connectivity was not that good. But with the growth of personal computers or PCs and servers, software could now be linked in a more decentralized structure. So you could have a computer in one room, a computer in another room, and a computer in another room, and they could all link together via a server. And so that was the next growth of kind of how this infrastructure came to be. Now, by this point, nine out of 10 large U.S. companies were using SAP systems. So not only had they had significant success over in Germany, but they expanded successfully in the U.S. as well. Now, outside of the United States, SAP began to expand aggressively in other markets too. They made their software available in 14 languages, and they set up subsidiaries in places like South Africa, Malaysia, Japan, China, Mexico, the list goes on and on. Now, the thing is, these products were not cheap. And because big companies had the money and they wanted to stay at the forefront of the technological boom, they were willing to pay a pretty penny for the software. So for example, a single module of SAP software could cost $100,000. Keep in mind that this is in 1990s dollars, so I'm not even adjusting for inflation here. And then it might cost a million plus for complete installation. Some installations I read even cost in the eight figures ranges. Now that's pretty incredible. (laughs) If you're that good at technology and you're able to sell a product that's of superior quality, then yeah, the people who have money to spend on your solution, they're going to pay top dollar for that because they recognize the advantage that it gives in business. So this was successful for a while, but the world continues to evolve. And as we know, no company can really rest on its laurels for that long before competitors come hunting for some of that market share. And that's exactly what happened with SAP. 
the most formidable of SAP's opponents rose from a couple different places. One was in the US and that was Oracle. And another was a company from the Netherlands called Bon, that's spelled B-A-A-N. So Bon even won a contract from Siemens, which was in SAP's backyard. So companies were starting to take SAP's market share. And one of the reasons was that SAP, I think, got a little complacent around this time. The installation time required for R3, their flagship product, it had significant time costs for the customer and not to mention the monetary costs. And that started to weigh on customers. And these other companies saw it as an opportunity. So in spite of these setbacks, SAP was able to remain successful. They continued to invest a lot of money into research and development. And when you think about a technology company, you really need to keep investing in R&D because technology moves so fast anyway. If you're not constantly learning and studying and experimenting, how are you going to come up with the next big thing? If you don't come up with the next big thing, someone else is going to, and that could ruin your business overnight. So there's a very unique risk with technology companies because they rely explicitly on new things being invented. Whereas another company, say just like a a beverage company like Coca-Cola, yeah, you use technology and you constantly upgrade your technology, but you're not in the business of technology. You're in the business of selling flavored syrup that can be (laughs) filled in glass bottles and, and and plastic cans and aluminum cans. That's your business but you're just using technology to your advantage. But, but if you're a technology company, you live or die based on how well you innovate. And SAP was able to continually invest in R&D. In fact, at times they would invest up to a quarter of their revenue, so 25%, back into the company, specifically in research and development. And that enabled their R3 product to be better and more accessible over time. Particularly with the internet growing around this time, they were able to incorporate R3 with the growing internet. So they were able to incorporate it such that customers could purchase things online and then that purchase would immediately register in the company's SAP installed system. So they did evolve with the times. Additionally, SAP had some big wins in the 90s because they had partnerships with different tech giants. For example, they partnered with Microsoft and they made their software able to integrate with Microsoft's operating and database systems. And then kind of to return the favor, Microsoft became a customer and used SAP for their finance and accounting data. Now, when you get a big cosign like that, that means that you're kind of being validated by the market. So going forward in time, SAP continued to upgrade their offerings and continue technology research. And then they changed their legal structure in 2014 to SAP SE. Now, as someone who studies mostly American companies, this was kind of new for me. The SE stands for Societas Europea, which in English translates to European society. And what that basically means is that's kind of just the legal structure that a lot of large European companies take. And it allows companies with that designation to operate more freely within the European Union. So SAP was just kind of changing its legal structure. Now, around this time, the company made some significant acquisitions of companies that operate in the cloud business. And this kind of brings us into the next phase of SAP's operating history. So they started acquiring these cloud-based businesses. One of their acquisitions was of a company called Concur, which is cloud-based travel and expense software. 
and they paid over $8 billion for it. So a lot of money. Now I've used Concur just as a customer and I think it's a pretty solid platform. They've also acquired a company called Qualtrics in 2018 and that also cost around $8 billion. Now, that was an acquisition that I found interesting because it has incredible growth. I mean, Qualtrics is a company that grew their revenue by 50% in a single year. <laughs> so we'll get more into the numbers in a moment. All right, now let's talk about the business overview. At a basic level, what does SAP do? Well, they're a business that creates enterprise application software. Essentially, they make software solutions for businesses, both the internal business processes as well as the interactions with consumers. And that last part is what's called experience management. So I know this is a broad definition, but I think it truly describes SAP because what they're able to do is indeed very broad. SAP states that their goal is to use technology to equip enterprises around the world with the intelligence that they need to serve their customers and employees better. They help gather, analyze, and communicate data so that companies can take intelligent action. Now, SAP is a huge company. They're actually the largest company in the DAX, which that is a blue chip index of German companies. It's the largest company traded on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange. Now, they have over 100,000 employees, just to give you another glimpse as to their size. And they have over 425,000 customers in over 180 countries. So basically, they're all around the world. Now, of those 100,000, one thing I found interesting is that over 27,000 of those employees work in research and development. So I do not think it is an exaggeration to say that they invest very heavily back into themselves as a business. And also, more broadly speaking, I think SAP is really one of the key businesses that enables other businesses to run the world. I mean, they actually support so many other companies' infrastructure. So SAP wants to equip businesses to perform better. Well, how do they do that? Well, their intention is to inject artificial intelligence and machine learning into every business process and every facet of their software. Now, if you're unfamiliar with these terms, this basically means that computer programs can grow and adapt on their own without being manually programmed by an engineer. It's kind of a life-changing paradigm, and in fact, it's already altering the way that technology works. You'll probably hear me talk more and more about AI and machine learning in future episodes because it's just really shaping the way that we live and shaping American business and international business as well. Now, SAP's flagship product is called SAP HANA, that's H-A-N-A, which it's like its predecessors in that it's a platform meant to accommodate a very wide range of business needs. So that includes things like human resources, sales, service, procurement, manufacturing, research and development, on and on and on. Now, about 14,000 customers use that product as of 2019. So with this Qualtrics acquisition, let's get back into that. They also expanded into experience management. So think of experience management like this. So traditionally, when companies gather data, it's usually related to their operations. And this is referred to as O data or operations data. 
Now, this is useful to a certain degree because it tells you what's going on, right? Like if you're trying to ship products out the door, okay, what's the rate of products going out the door? That tells me how quickly I can expect to turn a profit, basically. So it tells you what's going on, but it doesn't tell you the why. It's up to humans to interpret that data and then make decisions. The different type of data that is part of the experience management industry or sub-industry is called experience data or X data. And that's really meant to fill the gap and help determine the why by using artificial intelligence and machine learning. So Qualtrics was built around creating complex surveys using algorithms, and it focuses on this experience data. So let's talk about an example because I think that'll help kind of drive this content home. So imagine that you go to a local retail store and you inquire about a certain shirt that you wanna buy. So you chat with a salesperson, maybe you browse a couple items on the racks, and then ultimately you buy something and then you leave the store. So got it? All right, so let's now think about all the different touch points that that company that sold you the shirt could theoretically have with you before, during, and after your purchase. So let's think about this. So think about before you even walk in the door. The company may have advertised to you. I mean, if they did this, it was probably in the form of a digital ad, probably on your smartphone, based on other data sets that have been used to track your interests, your desires, your historical behavior. Maybe you watch a YouTube video and an ad pops up for this particular shirt, or maybe not that particular product, but the company itself. Maybe you see a billboard on your commute. There's all sorts of ways that a company can influence you before you even interact with the physical location. And then what about during? When you enter the store, what time of day is it? What day of the week is it? What season is it? When you enter the store, where do you walk within the physical space? Are you walking in and heading right to the rack that you're interested in? Or do you kind of meander around and Look at a few items before you get to what you're ultimately searching for. How much time is there between when you enter the store and when you talk with the salesperson? Do you just go right up to the salesperson and start chatting? Do you wait? What do you do? How much time is there between that conversation and then your ultimate decision to purchase an item? You can see all these different pieces of data here adding up to a story. And then after you make the decision, after you leave and buy your shirt, your credit card information is now tracked. Now, perhaps you also get something like a thank you email from the store with a follow-up survey, or maybe you own an Apple Watch or some other kind of wearable device, and you get some kind of a one-question survey on your screen about how satisfied you are with your purchase. <laughs> so there's a lot of things there, before, during, and after a sale, your quote-unquote experience can be managed in a way by all these different touch points between you and the company. It's not just the product or service itself, it's all the things surrounding it. And this is incredibly important in today's technology-driven world. So the point is, the nature and frequency of these data touch points are evolving and they're changing really rapidly. And companies like SAP are diving headfirst into this new world by enabling other businesses with these capabilities. So remember SAP, where do they get the cash from? They get the cash from other businesses. And then those businesses are paying SAP for this infrastructure of technology. That's what's going on here. 
So speaking of that, what are the business segments of SAP? Well, they're separated into four. There's cloud, software licenses, software support, and services. So software support is the biggest revenue driver, well, for now, followed closely by cloud. Now, cloud is the fastest growing segment. We've talked about cloud computing a little bit already on the show. It's definitely kind of a big macro trend right now. Cloud is growing. Software license revenue, that's been falling, but luckily that's been replaced by the cloud revenue. So software licenses, back in the day, you may remember, that used to be the primary business model for software, but now recurring revenue is king. So take a look at the other software businesses that have been switching to this model. For example, if you haven't listened to it already, go check out episode 58 of the podcast where we talk about Adobe. And Adobe has seen some massive results in recent years by switching to this recurring revenue model. Now, software licensing, it's considered to be kind of like a product, quote unquote, whereas cloud-based services are considered to be services, which you may have seen the abbreviation SaaS or software as a service, S-A-A-S. And that's exactly what SAP is doing here with their cloud segment. Now, the cloud revenue has gone from just 15% of the total revenue back in 2015 to well over a third of the revenue in 2019. So it's a big transformation. Now, as far as geographic diversification of SAP's overall revenue, I wanted to take a look at that too. And thankfully, things are pretty well diversified. About 40% comes from the Americas, about 44% from Europe, and then 15% comes from Asia and Oceania. So countries like Australia, China, Japan. Remember, SAP sells to customers in 180 different countries. So they're pretty well diversified, especially consider, considering um, or rather compared to a lot of the other companies that exist out there. All right, let's get into the financials of this company. Now, for the sake of simplicity, this is an audio format that I'm reaching you with right now. So I don't want to get too bogged down in the complexity of numbers. So what we do in this segment of the show is compare two different data sets just to see trends. So we're going to compare the years 2012 fiscal data to 2019, just so we can see kind of the long-term trends of the business. And first, we always start with sales. Sales, sales, sales. You don't have a business yet, really, if you don't have sales. So in 2012, the company made over 16 billion euros in sales. And by 2019, that had grown to over 27 billion euros, which is almost an 8% annual growth rate. So that's pretty good, especially for a company that was already large back in 2012. They've managed to grow their sales a lot. And I think this has to do with kind of their moat of pricing power. They're this big infrastructure, data, software type company. And not many companies can do what they do because they have tremendous resources and have already kind of proven themselves with their technology for a few decades. So that I think that kind of speaks to why the sales may have grown as much as they have. And not to mention the value add for software, it doesn't require a lot of capital expenditures to increase that value add. You really just need more research and develop new technology. So because it's digital, you can just kind of increase your prices if the market is willing to bear it. So you have a little bit 
of a different economic phenomenon happening there when compared to something like like a steel mill or, or a business like that where you're you're very reliant on the price of the underlying commodity in order to sell at a favorable price. So sales have been good here. Now about net income, how much money does this company keep in profit? Sales are nice, but profit is better. <laughs> so in 2012, SAP had just under 3 billion euros in net income. And in 2019, they had about 3.3 billion. So in actuality, they went from 2.8 to 3.3 if we want to get specific. Now that's about a two, two and a half percent annual growth rate in income. So I was kind of disappointed by this. Like the net income didn't increase that much. Like what's going on there? And we'll see a little bit more later why. Now looking at earnings per share, how much did you and I as prospective shareholders, would we have gotten as far as our cut of the profits? Well, the profits went from two euro and thirty-seven cents to two euro and seventy-eight cents, which pretty much matches the growth rate of the net income exactly. So the reason why this is so low is most recently in 2019, that net income number included a lot of restructuring costs in the business. And so if we take that out, that number will actually be higher. That's why it's so important. Look, it's so important when you're looking at a business. Don't just scan Yahoo Finance or scan whatever your source of financial data is and say, oh, like that's a bad company or that's a bad growth rate. No, no, no. Go actually look at the SEC filings. Go look at the company's reports because there's a lot of hidden things in there that you simply cannot get browsing an aggregator type of site. Now, don't get me wrong. I use sites like Yahoo Finance and Google Finance and all these other types of avenues all the time when I'm browsing at a very high level for certain stocks. But if I'm actually going to get into the business, well, you got to go to the source. So that's part of the value that I'm trying to provide to you right now is I've actually done that and I'm sharing with you what I've learned. So I encourage you to do the exact same thing. When you're looking at a company, if it looks interesting and things look kind of interesting just at a high level, don't be afraid to just dig a little deeper and actually go to the SEC filings and go to the statements to figure out what's going on. You can actually see things like these restructuring costs and understand that what looks like a certain figure on the surface, the economic reality is actually different once you start peeling back the layers. So I just want to encourage you in that respect. So now that we looked at the income statement, remember there are three main financial statements in a business. There's the income statement, the balance sheet, and then the cash flow statement. The income statement, that just talks about income and expenses, right? We just went over that a little bit. Now, the balance sheet, that's assets and liabilities. What does a company own versus what does a company owe? And one of the things I like to look at as far as ownership is just straight cash. How much cash does SAP have on its books? Cash is really important because it allows for flexibility, it allows for acquisitions, and it allows for future investment too. So in 2012, SAP had about 2.5 billion euro in cash, and that number doubled to over 5.3 billion in 2019. So the cash position has increased. Now what about debt? So long-term debt, unfortunately, this business has increased their debt a lot. They've gone from about 4.5 billion euro in 2012 to 13 billion euro in 2019. So a big increase there. Not surprising. Rates have been really, really low for a long time. So companies like to load up on the debt. Now let's turn our attention to the cash flow statement. 
Now, I remember when I was first learning about financial statements, I would get so confused. Like, why does the cash flow statement exist if we already have the income statement? Because don't they both kind of say the same thing? We're, we're talking about how much they make, right? Well, yes and no. The income statement and the cash flow statement are pretty similar, but they are unique to each other. The cash flow statement talks about how much money actually went into and out of the business. So let's say if you had a small business and you were keeping your books, you would probably use a cash-based system, right? Something like that. Money is actually flowing in and flowing out. Whereas with the income statement, you have all sorts of different accounting concepts that kind of come into play that can change the numbers. And so not that they're invalid, they're definitely valid, but it takes an understanding of those concepts in order to be able to interpret them correctly. And I'm still working on that myself, trying to really hone in on all the terminology and understanding exactly what things mean. All that to say, the cash flow statement is a great place to look as an investor in a prospective company just to see where the money is really flowing. Now, one of those metrics is operating cash flow. It's kind of like profit, but a little bit different. Operating cash flow tells you how much money is actually flowing through the business based on its operating activities. So in 2012, SAP made about 3.8 billion euro in operating cash flow. And in 2019, it was only 3.5 billion. So they actually went down a little bit. So I was kind of sad to see that. I don't really know why, but maybe it's just a one-time thing. And maybe I need to dig a little deeper on that aspect. As far as the investing cash flow, this company invests a lot in itself. They spent about 6 billion euro in 2012 and about 7 billion euro in 2019 net on investing activities. So a lot of acquisitions, you know, we talked about Qualtrics, we talked about Concur. Those are big acquisitions that required billions of euros. As far as the financing cash flow, um, it went from just about 200 million euro in 2012 to about 100 million euro positive in 2019. And the, the components of this section of the cash flow statement are really just related to things like borrowing money, paying back borrowed money, paying dividends, issuing stock, buying back stock, those kinds of things. So because this company doesn't really buy back that much stock and they do pay a dividend, but it's not as high of a, a proportion relative to the amount of debt on the balance sheet and the activities there. That's why these numbers look really low. So I wouldn't pay too much attention to the overall financing cash flow number. All right, let's talk about dividends. Now, a lot of software companies don't actually pay dividends at all. They're usually higher growing companies, faster growing companies. And because of the cutthroat nature of technology as an industry, you really have to invest heavily into yourself as a business, making sure that you can survive another day, that you're creating the next hot new product, that you're able to keep up with the pace of your industry. And so dividends usually don't get paid out except for very mature technology companies. I mean, companies like Microsoft pay a dividend, but a company like Google or Alphabet rather does not pay a dividend. But SAP is one of those large software firms that actually does pay a dividend. They spent about 1.3 billion euros in 2012, and they spent about 1.8 billion in 2019. So they have been growing that dividend. Now on a per share basis, this is what you and I would receive, 85.85 euro per share to 1.5 euro per share. 
over that seven-year time period, which is great. That's about an 8.5% annual growth rate in our dividends per share. And part of the reason we were able to get this was that the shares outstanding actually didn't change at all over this period. There's about 1.2 million shares, and that hasn't really changed. So, hey, not a bad thing. All right, now let's talk about the valuation and some closing thoughts that I have about this business. So there's some aspects of SAP that I do find pretty remarkable. I mean, in the past seven years, SAP, which was already a big company, managed to double the number of customers they had from 200,000 to over 400,000. And in recent years, sales have been marching upwards at a pretty solid pace. I mean, thanks to their cloud products. Gross profits have been good. And those things are things that I like to see in a business, especially a larger one when a large business is growing profits or rather income at a high single digit rate. That's usually a pretty good sign. The problem I have is that this hasn't really translated into net income growing that much. And I think looking a little more deeply at the income statement, This is due to increased marketing expenses, research and development, and also a lot of restructuring expenses. This is a company that makes a lot, but they also spend a lot. Now, even if we just back out the restructuring expenses, which I mentioned earlier, SAP is doing well. Its earnings per share would be closer to about €3.66, somewhere around there. Now, as far as the ADR trading on the New York Stock Exchange. Now, an ADR, if you don't know what that is, that stands for American Depository Receipt. It's a type of security that basically lets US-based investors buy foreign stock. So it's usually sponsored by a big bank and they'll buy the actual shares on the foreign exchange and then they'll give a receipt to the American shareholder basically saying, hey, this is good for a certain number of shares of the real thing or the original security. So quick side note there, but the, the share on the New York stock exchange is trading right now at around $155 us American. Now that's against trailing 12 month earnings of about $4 and 14 cents. Now, what does that give us as far as the price earnings ratio? Well, if you're doing some mental math in your head real quick, that's about 37 times earnings. So I think that's a bit rich for the growth profile. I mean, they do seem to be a good quality company. They've got a strong competitive advantage, I think, based on the fact that most companies don't want to build their own software systems to run the mundane stuff that makes modern businesses work. So SAP is doing its job by providing these services. But even though they're growing their cloud revenue really quickly, It just doesn't seem like shareholders are benefiting that much. I mean, more and more money is getting plowed into R&D, into sales, etc. And that's good in a way, but where are the profits? The profits aren't growing long term, or at least in the past decade, they haven't really grown that much long term. So I kind of have a problem with that. And then there aren't any buybacks long term, but the dividend does continue to increase and it seems well supported. Now, the dividend yield, even though the dividend has increased at a decent rate, it's only about 1% right now. And that's kind of typical for software firms. If they do pay a dividend, it's usually not a big one because there's usually a relatively high price to earnings ratio based on the nature that it's a software firm that's growing really fast. Anyway, (laughs) dividend yield is kind of small. So I wouldn't be upset owning SAP. From what I've seen, it looks solid. 
but the price doesn't seem to leave much of a margin of safety from what I can see. One other kind of interesting tidbit as we end the episode is that Qualtrics, that company that SAP bought a couple years ago, well, guess what? They're apparently going to spin that off in an IPO. <laughs> so that's a story that could be interesting. So SAP looks like it might get a one-time infusion of cash, which would be nice for them, but they're going to give up one of their prize assets or what seems to be one of their prize assets in my opinion. So we'll see how that story unfolds. Um, so I think SAP may be one to watch, but yeah, just trading at a valuation that I think is just not really warranted for a company that isn't returning a lot of cash to shareholders. Do they return some cash to shareholders? Yeah, they do, but it's nothing to get too excited about in my opinion. Um, that being said, like I have used SAP before as a customer and it's definitely powerful software. So I've had firsthand experience with it. It's just a matter of, as a business, I'm not sure if they're as shareholder friendly as I would want them to be. So I'll leave you to think about that. So that's gonna wrap up today's episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I really appreciate it. Again, my name is Alex Mason. I'm your stock storyteller, and yeah, I'm gonna be here next week and every week after that, giving you new knowledge, giving you new case studies, giving you new mental models. And I'm just excited that I get to help you on this journey that we're going together in order to become better investors. If you enjoyed this show, uh, let me just ask one thing of you. If you can share this show with someone this week who you think it might benefit, someone who maybe has an interest in a certain company, but you know, they want to learn more about it, but they just haven't really gotten what they're looking for from, you know, articles on the internet or just looking at stock tickers, send them to an episode of the company that they're interested in that we have already covered on the show. We are speeding through the S&P 500 and other companies like SAP. So if you can help me out, share this episode or the podcast in general with someone who you think would benefit from it. And I would be really appreciative. So thank you in advance for that. Again, I'm Alex Mason, and this is Stock Stories. We'll see you next week. presented here on Stock Stories is for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only. You and you alone are responsible for your investment and financial decisions. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, or financial advisor that can analyze your specific situation in the context of your goals and circumstances.